Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this episode, I sit down with Brad Knox, founder and CEO of Emotors, a startup building a product called Bots Alive, which are animal-like robots that have a strong illusion of life. We chat about the approach the company is taking, why robots are agents that pass themselves off as human without any transparency should be illegal, and some challenges and applications of reinforcement learning and interactive machine learning. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Radar Podcast, Brad. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. So to bring our listeners up to speed, let's start with a bit about your background and and what you're doing now. Sure. So I studied psychology as an undergrad, did a big 180 and did a PhD in computer science at the University of Texas at Austin. And while I was there, I basically ended up combining that that psychology research and psychology interests into a lot of more traditional areas of computer science, specifically machine learning, robotics, artificial intelligence. Um, always looking at those with a perspective of how is a human interacting with these systems and how can a human interact with these systems? In my dissertation, I you know, roughly you could call the dissertation animal training uh, algorithms for robots. So basically we wanted to know what happens uh, or how can we create algorithms that will allow a person who knows nothing about robotics, nothing about AI to walk up to a robot and give it uh, symbolic reward and punishment signals and have the robot actually learn what they want uh, the person to, to have it learn. So that was the, the PhD. After that, I went to uh, the MIT Media Lab, and I was a postdoc for two years underneath Professor Cynthia Brazil, uh, who's a, a major pioneer in, in social robotics. Uh, and, and while I was there, I focused on a approach of creating characters uh, using puppetry. And so what we did there is we took this this branch of machine learning that's called uh, learning from demonstration. And it, it's kind of what it sounds like, where a person or a system demonstrates to a machine learning algorithm how to do something. Um, so in our case, we're, we're puppeteering a robot. Um, and then the, the machine learning system learns how to emulate uh, that, that puppetry um, or that demonstration. And it had been done for, for tasks like, you know, manipulating an object, navigating, things like that, but it hadn't been done to create a character. Um, and so that's what we focused on while I was there at MIT, where we we would take an improvising human puppeteer and, and create a machine learning model that could then be plugged in instead of the puppeteer and control the robot autonomously while capturing uh, the spontaneity and the randomness, stochasticity, and all the other good things that an actual like person has uh, that really can add to the authenticity of the social interaction. Um, so that's that's my academic uh, career in a, a quick nutshell. And for the last uh, almost two years, I've been working on a company, a Motors, building this this startup, and we're releasing a product called Bots Alive, uh, hopefully in January through Kickstarter. And our our big vision there is, I, I think we might talk about this a little bit in a minute, but the big vision is to create simple animal-like robots that have a strong illusion of life. Um, in this immediate product is going to be a, a, a really nice first step in that direction. Right. Well, that's interesting. Fascinating background, too. So just as you mentioned, your goal with the company is to create a, a strong illusion of life. So a couple of questions there. So to what end? Like, what's the long, long term vision for the project and, and beyond? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I see the purpose of building illusion of life is 
that a, a few things fall out of it. So if we if we just focus on illusion of life and not necessarily companionship or or really social interaction, uh, there there's a lot of fascination, um, delight, just entertainment that comes out of having uh, having nature around us in general. And if we can create something that feels natural, that uh, maybe feels like having a simple pet, like maybe, you know, not for a while, anything like a dog or a cat, but like something like a, an iguana or a hamster or something like that, where you can kind of observe with observe it and interact with it, um, that, that that alone, without the, the higher value that dogs and cats give us, that that would be uh, really valuable to people. Um, and, um, and the way that we're, we're creating that is, is going back to that research that I did when I was at MIT with, with Cynthia Brazil and, and a master's student, uh, Sam Spaulding. Um, and that's, that's that learning from demonstration or machine learning on human improvised puppetry. Uh, so our, our, our bet or our hypothesis, that this product in, in some ways we'll be testing out is, the idea that if you create a artificially intelligent character using current methods, what it really kind of boils down to is you you sit back and you think, well, in this situation, the character should do this. You know, so maybe if it's a an animal like robot, if a person moves their hand quickly, the robot should be scared and run away. Um, and that 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 comes up with some like fairly interesting characters. Um, but our hypothesis is that we'll get much more authentic. Uh, behavior, something that really feels real, if we actually allow a person to control the character uh, through a lot of interactions, and then take that the the records, the logs of of those interactions, and learn a model of of the person. As long as that model is is good fidelity, like it doesn't have to be perfect, just but pretty good fidelity of the puppeteer, um, and the you know and the puppeteer is actually cre- you know creating something that would be fun to observe or interact with. Uh, then we're in a really good position to really take all of what's what's like kind of hard to to sit back and and write down on paper about why we do the things we do, uh, but it's going to be in the data, uh, and so hopefully we'll be able to learn that and uh, and really imbue these these robots uh, with some magic through through that uh, learning from demonstration. Yeah, that's a fascinating approach. It reminds me of um, a project. Somebody, I forget who's working on it, but they've made a, a suit that's censored and they train the suit. Like for an example, they would put Tiger Woods in the suit and he would um, tee off a golf ball and he would do this several times and they would record it. And then they would put a student into the suit and play that back to train the student how to swing a ball, swing a, a, a golf club. Um, and, it, and yeah, it's got really medical purposes too, like teaching you know, people to walk again and things like that. So just kind of what are the biggest challenges you're facing with this with this sort of approach? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think the, the approach that I think there's a couple of things that you touched on just there. Uh, one is, is there, there's kind of two parts to a system that's going to be like a, a tutorial in, in the way that you were describing with the, the Tiger Woods uh, right. Right. Uh, golf swing thing. One is, is a system needs to learn what it actually is a good golf swing. And then it has a needs to have a way of giving feedback or giving some sort of pedagogical uh, information uh, to the person who's learning based on its understanding of, of what a good golf swing is. Um, and I think both of those are, are very challenging and uh, and interla- interrelated questions. Um, and for the for the golf swing, I'm sure there's some subjective aspect of, of what a good golf swing is and what what isn't a good golf swing. But I, it seems like a good example of of what 
we're typically looking at an artificial intelligence where there's a fairly well-defined task uh, where you can end up with a, a numeric measurement of how well you did. So with that golf swing, uh, you could say, well, we want, we're, gonna, we're just going to evaluate the the swing on where the ball goes. And so maybe the number is distance uh, from the hole. Um, sure, you're missing a few things with that. You may want to consider the surface it lands on, things like that. And, and that's the normal type of problems that we're looking at in artificial intelligence. Um, so one of the challenges is how what we're doing is different, where we're interested in tasks that don't really have highly defined uh, end goals. So social interaction or providing delight and fascination and entertainment through seeming alive and, and exhibiting all the complexity um, of, of being a, a simple life form. Uh, it's, it's hard to pin down like what we would actually measure there. Mm-hmm. um to 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 really optimize against um and and that's one reason this this learning from demonstration approach is is a a nice approach in that uh we don't have the system learning to be good at social interaction directly instead we're having a person this improviser who we are assuming and and hoping is good at creating social interaction or or lifelike behavior uh and then we have the system simply try to emulate the person and it's much easier uh, you know, there's still some complications there, but but it's much easier to create a metric that says the model is emulating the demonstrator or the puppeteer effectively. Um, so we get to kind of side sidestep the messiness of the problem a little bit and do something that's that's much more of a a soft problem in a way than than these much more defined tasks that are usually focused on in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Right, right, and probably a little easier than training like a chat bot for voice interaction. Yeah, I'm 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 yet to uh personally interact with a chatbot that that I want to interact with uh after the first minute or so. So um, but I, I, look way off. To, I look forward to that day. <laughs> you recently tweeted, should a robot or agent that widely passes for human be illegal? And you said, I think so. So why do you say that? And is that not a bit contradictory to the mission to, to create a deep illusion of life? Sure. So the the reason that I I wrote that and the reason I you know, still believe that uh, that if a a robot or or an agent so uh, you can think of an agent as any anything that senses the state of its environment whether that's the physical world or maybe it's it's on online and its job is to to buy you plane tickets or something anything that's that senses its state senses the state of the environment uh, and then takes actions that affect the environment. So, so the idea is that anything like whether it's a robot or something that like is like a chatbot online, just something that you're interacting with, that if it can pass as human, that if it doesn't give you a, a some sort of give, some sort of signal or flag that like, hey, even if I'm human-like, I'm not actually human, that really opens the door to uh, to deception and, and manipulation. Um, and I think that's uh, you know for for people who are familiar with the Turing test, uh, which is the you know by far the most known test uh, for successful artificial intelligence. One of the issues I have with it is uh, that ultimately it is about deceiving people, uh, about having them not be able to tell the difference between an artificially intelligent entity and and a human. And so I, I for me the the real issue is that you know as much as I'm you know generally a, a believer in capitalism, I think that there's there's room for abuse uh, by uh, commercial companies. You know, for instance, uh, it's it's hard enough when a person, when you're walking down the street and a person tries to get your attention to to buy something or donate to some cause. Um, and and part of that is because it's a person, and you want to you don't want to be rude to this person. Um, 
But when we can create, uh, you know, a large number, uh, eventually inexpensive uh, fleet of human-like or actually pass-for-human uh, robots that can also pull on your emotions in a way that helps some some company, I, I think I think that really puts us into to really really negative. I'm mean, not even dangerous. It's already the 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 negative side is realized at that point. And then another so another issue I think with with this idea of um, with robots that are that are so human like um, that we really wouldn't be able to tell the difference uh, is this idea of um, it's a little bit complicated to say, but uh, human to robot interaction transferring to human to human interaction. So to give an example, uh, let's say there is you've got a, your your child has a, a robot that helps out at home in some way. Um, and this child is really mean to the robot. If in some way that robot, maybe through its its servant status or you know its its service robot status, is not going to to stand up for itself or even show that it's that it's upset in some way, uh, if it's highly human, then it might be the case that your child then thinks, oh, well, this is an okay way to interact with with things that are human-like, including humans. And then your child might start experimenting like, oh, can I also be rude in this way to to real people? Um, whereas if uh, if the robot doesn't seem human, um, and, and I want to say this is this is speculative, but I think it's it's highly plausible. If the robot doesn't seem human, and uh, then the the likelihood of generalizing from okay, it's be it's okay to be rude to my Roomba to it's okay to be rude to my friend, you know, the person sitting next to me in class. I think that that generalization, that that translation, is is much less likely to happen, and and to the degree it does, it's going to be a smaller degree. Right, right. Um, so that's that's the first part of your question. The second part is how is it not a contradiction? Uh, so uh, the way I see illusion of life uh, in the way that we're doing it um, is very comparable to cartoons uh, or animation in general. Uh, so when you watch a cartoon, you know that it's fake. You know that it, that it's a rendering or a drawing uh, or a series of drawings with some voiceover. Um, but nonetheless, if you're like most people, you feel that these these characters in the cartoon or the animation, uh, that they have experience, that they have emotion and relationship um, and goals. Um, you know, like I, I, for one, cried in Toy Story 3 when they were all holding hands and kind of going down to that that uh, melting pit in the, the the dumpster area or whatever. Yeah, I think we all did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really emotional. Um, even though I knew it was, I, you know, I, I knew it was fake, you know? So I think that's that's a better model where we know it's not real, but we can still feel that it's real to the extent that, that we, and hopefully to the extent that we want to, that we have a way of, of turning it off um, and that we're not um, completely emotionally beholden to these these entities. And it sounds like it it taps in um, to your psychology background a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how that background informs your work today? Sure. I, you know, I, I asked that of myself um, all through my my PhD and and still at, at times now. Um, and it's 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 hard to pin down exactly. You know, so if if I had gone from computer science and math to psychology instead of the other way around, I think it'd be much easier to say like, well. I know this, you know, I know differential equations and I can do this and I can do that. And that's applicable to this area of psychology, you know, because psychology, like almost every discipline, uh, is like moving in a more and more mathematical direction. But the other way around, the set of actually immediately usable skills that I got from psychology is kind of harder to, to really point at. Um, but I do think it was my, my like intuition is that it was really beneficial, um, from 
creating a, a different taste in, in what research uh, would be valuable. I think it, it drew me to more unique areas than maybe a, a person with a more traditional background in computer science. And then also my, you know, my dissertation was basically, I, I came into the PhD wanting to do uh, operant and classical conditioning for robots. I wanted to, I basically wanted to be able to do animal training for robots. Um, and it took me a little while to figure out how to ground that out in existing computer science. So again, taste-wise, I was drawn to this thing. We're, we're really like applying uh, psychology uh, models of behavior and learning to artificial intelligence. I, I think there's more that could be said here. I, I think it has been really helpful, but uh, it's sometimes hard to to pin down when you come from a, a discipline that doesn't have super explicit tools that you know maybe build on each other, like in the way that you need to know algebra to to you know at least probably to, to know calculus, things like that. Um, psychology is not quite like that, where there are some building blocks of, of understanding, uh, but really it's a lot of it is understanding all these different categories, um, what's, been, what's been learned so far, some unifying theories that exist, um, and so on. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's been helpful. I wish I could give a, a clearer answer on, on how it's, it's been helpful, but I definitely do endorse and encourage people who are thinking about doing an interdisciplinary approach uh, to to research. Having having two areas of expertise, I think really does help you stand out and and really contribute to the field in a way that a lot of other people aren't equipped to. Right. It sounds like it gave you like a good foundation for a particular mindset and sort of a, a unique guide to your approaches to your work. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so to tap into that just a little bit, um, I want to bring up a debate that's going on today um, about whether or not robots or algorithms can effectively achieve artistic content like painting and poetry and music. Um, there are already bots and algorithms out there doing this, but the effectiveness part is is in question. So I'm curious from a psychological perspective, do you think humans would be capable of valuing the poetry and and other artistic content like that that was that was produced by robots as as much as they do you know poetry written by humans so if let's say if a, if a robot can mimic keats uh, will we be emotionally and psychologically affected we we try we'd be trying to connect our emotions to emotions a robot doesn't really have right yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and uh, you know, I, my my expertise on this is is definitely less less on the professional side, but it's definitely something I, I think about and talk about with with people. And I, I think the the like quick answer that that I would give is that I do think it is possible for for artificial intelligence systems to to create art. I, yeah, the way I see people, uh, I see us as complex machines, ones that we really don't fully understand yet, um, but nonetheless, we are. There is some sort of uh, machine-like, or not machine-like, but actually like a, a something that could be described as a machine that that uh, undergirds how how we end up behaving and and the you know and, and the things that we do through that behavior, including creating art. Um, so I think it's possible, but for me, it's a very open question about when uh, art will be created by these systems that really has some mainstream appeal. This again is outside my expertise, but I have a really strong suspicion that if uh, if we like dug into it just a little bit uh, on Google, we could find some examples of of algorithmic art that people are actually appreciating just for its artistic aspect. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's mainstream yet. Uh, but one other thing that I think is it's kind of an interesting 
I don't know, uh, addition to this this question is that there's, you know, there's questions, you know, there's debates also just about what art is. Um, and, and one of the answers that I'm I'm more drawn to is focused on the experience of art. That maybe some some object is not art in some absolute way or not, but it's art if it uh, provokes what you might call like an artistic experience um, in in the people who are who are consuming it. And so in that way, there's there's kind of an interesting like circular circular thing happening where if people do decide that that art created by artificial intelligent systems is not valuable because it is from artificial intelligent systems and that's enough to actually not let them experience it as art then at least by that one definition then it's no longer actually art and i don't know if that's more of a, like a, a semantic argument about it but i do think it kind of gets at this this idea that that there are shifting definitions of what is artistic um, in a similar way that we've we've kind of changed over time uh, what we think of as intelligent as as artificial systems have been able to do certain things better than us you know so like for instance like memory there the need to have a really fantastic memory well it's still super helpful and I wish mine was better um, that that needs gone gone down somewhat with things like Google and you know and and other technology even like printing press and so like there's at least arguments in the kind of the popular intellectual sphere that uh, that we've changed what we value about intelligence. And I think I think art could be seen in a similar way where it's possible that artificial artificially created art could end up being uh, highly valued, but it also could be that there's some aspect of us of us kind of thinking, well, this isn't by a human, and that that somehow shifts what we value towards uh, things that we are we are still the best at. And in the same way that, yeah, that that I think memory has has uh, been changed as as well. Yeah, that's interesting. It brings to mind, um, actually, while you were talking about that, you you kind of pointed a little bit to the originality factor, like whether the the AI is is creating something original or whether they're mimicking like, you know, um, Mozart or Keats or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, Fractal art came to mind. Because I have a great appreciation for that, actually. And I mean, it's created by algorithms. So it's and I don't know how original it is or or even exactly how it works. But I know when I'm choosing art and stuff for our website, um, you'll if you poke through the the stories on uh, O'Reilly.com, uh-huh. you'll see examples of, of fractal art in there. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be curious to find out. Yeah, it's interesting. And I wonder, you know, like your personal values, how much that also informs your your openness to to fractal art and to machine generated art. Right. And what what about humor? Humor is another question. That's that's almost that's almost bigger than than art in general. Humor is very uh, complicated. Right. It feels even maybe maybe more difficult to really say, like, what exactly humor is and, and why we respond uh, to, to certain things in a humorous way. I guess my my response would be largely the same to to art. Um, I do want to like point towards one one effort in this sphere, though. Uh, there's there's a group here in Austin, uh, in Austin, Texas, called Bot Party. It's this this nonprofit uh, started by Arthur Simone, who's kind of one of the the local figureheads in the improv comedy scene. And what they're trying to do is uh, human robot improv. So they're creating robots and uh, other art. You know, some like software focused or you know software only entities that can actually act as as actors on stage um, with humans that are that are acting alongside them. And and it seems like a particularly a particularly uh, 
well suited. I think improv is particularly well suited for this um, in the sense that uh, robots are, or AI in general, are going to make things that we would probably consider mistakes uh, from a performance perspective. But improvisers are taught to, uh, one, one of the idioms is to like jump on the grenades that their fellow improvisers like accidentally throw out. You know, so if I'm an improviser and I make a decision that that maybe is not the best decision while while performing with someone else, it's my fellow performer's job to make that into a good decision. So they they should react in a way that actually makes it uh, good for the show as as much as possible. And so I think I think that skill set works out really well for robots. Where you know if you like plug a chatbot into a robot and put it on stage, it's going to say things that really don't make sense, but if you respond in a way that makes those nonsensical, you, like you as a human can kind of explain what that robot did in a way that does make it make more sense. Um, so I think it's like, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting bridge from fully artificially intelligence created humor in a way that we're, we're bringing them in and making them an important part and actually like actors on stage, but still with humans uh, so that there's that collaboration going. Um, yeah, that's that's bot party. They're they're doing some really cool work. I'm gonna have to look that up. That's interesting. And it's a good it's a, a good insight too with the interaction back and forth and, and sort of the human being able to rescue the situation that a robot and even in that yeah. in itself is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, you know, they quickly there's there's a lot of stuff online. I, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen the montage of robots falling down. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really funny. Um, I, at least, you know, I think most people think it's funny. But they quickly realized that robots falling down and robots just doing really dumb things, uh, you really, you know, you don't get that much humor out of that. Um, you can only use that. You end up kind of using that uh, type of humor up. And and so, like, really, it, it I think they were they were quickly pushed towards non mistake based uh, humor, I think, which is a, a good direction. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, so now I want to do a complete 180 um, and take a look at some of the things that you've written this past year and talk about that a little bit. If we could look at first, uh, you wrote a paper on reinforcement learning. Um, so let's just start out basic. What is reinforcement learning? Yeah, so so reinforcement learning is a subfield of machine learning. Um so the the major the the biggest two categories of machine learning are called supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And reinforcement learning is a large, you know, third or you know maybe someone else someone else might say it's like fourth category within machine learning. Um, and so just to to kind of contrast it with those other approaches. Um, so one way you might think of reinforcement learning is that it's it's a approach for learning to do uh, what's called a sequential decision making task. And and so what that actually means, so like a a really good supervised learning problem uh, that's you know that we commonly interact with. So not reinforcement learning, but supervised learning is spam filters. You know, so um, and actually this is uh we're, we're talking a little bit about interactive machine learning. This is actually an interactive machine learning uh, problem in some sense. But basically, these spam filters, an email comes in, the algorithm should say whether it's spam or not, maybe with some confidence. And then, uh, and then an action is taken. The spam email is is put into a folder, um, and then also people can give it extra information by actually marking things as spam or not. Now, for for this problem, for any specific email, if the system says this email is spam or this email is not spam, that doesn't really change the correct answer for another email in any appreciable way. Like the fact that my first email of the day was spam 
probably doesn't have that much, uh, you know, that much, uh, actually the fact, not just the fact that it was spam, but the system decided it was spam. That's not going to have a, a noticeable effect, at least as far as I'm aware of on whether the second email of the day is spam or not. So that's a non-sequential uh, decision-making task where the, the sequence of decisions or conclusions that the system's making uh, doesn't actually matter. It's just each one can be kind of uh, graded on, on its individual quality. So sequential decision-making task is one where the system has to make a sequence of decisions and the sequence matters. You know, so if, if I'm standing in, in a room and I want to get out of the room, and there's one door, if I turn left as my first action, maybe 90 degrees, the next actions, the, the following actions that, that will bring me to the goal of getting out the door are different than if I had turned right first. Um, so that very first action changed what the correct actions are in the future. So that's that's uh, hopefully that that gives some some intuition for what a sequential decision making task is, and I think that's that's actually the critical component for understanding when you might use reinforcement learning rather than another area of machine learning like unsupervised learning or supervised learning. So just to ground it out a little bit more, reinforcement learning also involves what's called a reward function, which uh, basically every time you take an action based on uh, you know the state you were in in your environment and the action you took and maybe some other information, a numeric reward signal is given to you. And I, when I say you, I mean the, the system, the agent. And And so the agent's job is to figure out what sequence of actions is going to maximize the reward, um, the, the sum of reward that it gets every step. And so to, to put this in a real world, uh, real world problem, uh, one way, so let's say you, you want a system to learn uh, chess. The you know, one, one way that you might set up the reward function for a chess game is to give zero reward for every single possible action except uh, three categories. Uh, if the action results in you checkmating your opponent, you get a plus one. Uh, if you uh, get checkmated, um, if your action results in you getting checkmated, then that's a minus one, and then a stalemate might be a zero. And, and so then you've got all these actions that led to those, those final states that actually have discriminating reward of plus one, zero, or negative one, and so the problem of reinforcement learning is this problem of credit assignment, where you want to know, you know, all these actions happened that got to this result with this numeric value. And how do we decide which of those actions were actually helpful and which ones weren't? And, and yeah, so that, that, that's reinforcement learning in a, in a, in a quick summary. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty deep area, though. And when we were talking about this before, you noted that there's a great deal of writing already on this topic. Can you talk a little bit about what your paper adds to the conversation? Yeah, so I, I had mentioned that when I came into my PhD, I was interested in this idea of human training of robots um, and in an animal training way. So uh, connecting that to reinforcement learning, uh, the research question, as, as we posed it, was um, instead of this reward function being coded up by an expert in reinforcement learning, what happens if you instead give buttons or some sort of interface where a person who knows nothing about computer science, nothing about AI or machine learning, comes and gives reward and punishment signals to uh, to an agent or you know including a robot and then what what what's the actual algorithmic changes that we need to make to make the system actually learn what that human that that technically naive human is trying to teach the agent to do and so if 
if it had turned out that the algorithmic changes, you know, if if people had not been violating any of the assumptions uh, when we actually did the experiments, any of the assumptions of reinforcement learning, then I think it wouldn't have ended up being an uh, interesting direction of research. Um, but what this paper is about is kind of diving into the ways that people did turn out to violate, like deeply violate the assumptions of reinforcement learning. So, so th one of the, the, the emphases of the paper is that people tend to have a bias towards giving positive reward. So I, it, I, it's been a while since I've looked at the numbers, but a large percentage of the trainers that we had uh, in our experiments would give more positive reward uh, than, than punishment. Or in, in, in reinforcement learning parlance, we'll often call it negative reward. So I might, I might mix up the, the phrase punishment and negative reward, uh, but they're synonymous. And so we, we found that people were biased towards this positive reward. And the way reinforcement learning is set up is, you know, often is in this, I, I won't, I won't define this, but I'll just, I'll just drop the jargon uh, for people who, who know about this already. But a lot of the, the reinforcement learning tasks are what we call episodic. And, and roughly like what that means is that when the task is completed, the, the agent can get no longer, no further reward. It's basically like, almost like it's like life is over, but not in a, not in a negative way. And so what, what happened is if we had people sit down and try to give reward and punishment signals to an agent trying to get out of a maze, they would be giving a positive reward for getting closer to the goal. But then this, this agent would learn correctly, at least by the assumptions of reinforcement learning, that it, if it gets to the goal, it gets no further reward. But if it stays in the world that it's in, it's going to get a net positive reward. And so the weird consequence is that this agent should never go to the goal, even though that's exactly what, it's, what these rewards are supposed to be teaching it. And so we, we in this paper, we, we discuss that and show the, the empirical evidence for it, that basically uh, the, these assumptions that, that reinforcement learning typically makes uh, are really problematic when you're letting a, a human give the reward. Um, and then we, this gets into like a little more technical stuff, but we, then we kind of start asking, well, what are the changes that we can make to the algorithms to make them work with people in the reward that they give. Hmm. And so what are some recent applications of this research? Um, so the, the research, yeah, applications. I, I wish I had uh, things I could point at. Um, when I was doing it, uh, I always thought of a, having an actual like industrial application as being at least two or three, two or three years off. But as far as actually just, just successes at, at teaching, um, like humans teaching these systems, we did, let's see, we have, uh, we have it implemented for Tetris. Uh, so you can sit down and basically reward a computer uh, algorithm while it's playing Tetris, uh, give it reward and punishment, and it learns to play Tetris. We had it for like a, a number of other like really simple things. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Guangliang Li, uh, adapted it to, to a kind of an open source Super Mario Brothers so that you can reward and punish Mario uh, and Mario gets better. Uh, completing the levels, and then uh, we also did it. Uh, we we implemented this the system, which at a the, at least the original system we called Tamer, um, which is a, an acronym uh, for teaching an agent manually via evaluative reinforcement. Uh, but we adapted Tamer to this this robot Nexi at MIT in the in the media lab, and the the task was really simple. We basically wanted uh, Nexi to navigate or move in a certain way based on where an object was uh, around her. Um, and I say her just because it's a very humanoid, very feminine uh, looking robot, uh, and, we and we called her her. Um, and, 
and and so we basically were able to teach just by changing the reward and punishment teach next to to uh to always look away from the item to follow it uh to follow it and but stop it at a comfort you know comfortable conversational distance um instead of actually running over the item to throw what looks kind of like a tantrum uh when the item is taken away from from right in front of uh, the robot Nexi. And so we were able to show that that really like a diversity of behavior can be taught without changing the algorithm at all and only changing the human uh the input um and the the the, the training that the the person is giving. I think that so the 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 challenge for creating applications and I, I think I think it's very close um but there's you know there's a there's a, a tension between between research and and industry and specifically what's what's valued there. And, you know, in research, we want to take extremely confident but possibly small steps forward in, in adding knowledge. And we want to be very sure that we're actually adding good knowledge. Uh, whereas I think in industry, we're, we're willing to take much faster steps um, and maybe skip a few validation steps of saying like every single decision we made was empirically correct and proven out through experiments um, and actually get something out there that, that the end result uh, works. And so I think I think really getting it, uh, getting a strong application is likely actually going to come from industry, um, and uh, and I do think it's it's just around the corner. But the big challenge there, and that, and this is what our paper actually dove into, is that to adapt these algorithms so that they learn correctly from human reward, we end up having roughly. So if you, if you remember the the chess example where the reward, the really informative reward comes at the end at, at like winning or losing or, or stalemating. That reward is something that the agent, if it's starting a game, is kind of looking forward towards. It's trying to like, uh, like it, it needs a a behavior that's going to get it to that, that reward that's, that's in the future. And with the human reward, what we ended up doing is really collapsing the the amount that the agent looks into the future and instead, it becomes very, you might think of it as very hedonistic or myopic in that it only really cares about the reward it's going to get immediately. And so that way, basically, it, instead of saying, I'm going to take all these actions to get to this goal, it's just saying, like, or it's just thinking the agent from its perspective, it's just thinking, if I take this action, given my current state, will a person actually, you know, give a positive reward or not? Um, and, and like, what's the action that's going to get get me the most reward? And And that made it so that these these systems could learn effectively from human trainers. But the downside is that for any complicated problem, you don't want to sit there and basically for every single action, when these actions can be really granular, um, say that was a good action, that was a bad action. And so the like one of the big areas of, of research remaining in this, this, uh, this topic of reinforcement learning from human reward is how do you take the information in a human's reward and punishment uh, signals and and actually use it to pull out something about like what is the actual goal like what's the long term uh, goal or like what are some long term failures too to, to try to avoid because sometimes you need to plan to avoid failure and and so I, I think that's the that's the biggest barrier uh, that remains I, I think there's a lot of very very plausible uh, paths to to getting to that though right and so what kind of role do you see this playing in AI systems? Yeah. So anytime an, an artificially, you know, if you think about AI, you know, one way to think about it, there's a lot of different definitions, um, including people saying that uh, AI, you know, once you solve a task with AI, it's no longer considered AI. It's just programming. Um, <laughs> but if you think of artificial intelligence as, uh, you know, systems that can 
behave intelligently um, in whatever environment and with whatever tasks they're they're given. This, uh, you know, machine learning and reinforcement learning specifically are for tasks where you don't, you can't just code it uh, beforehand with everything it needs to know to solve the task. And and sometimes, like with reinforcement learning, the typical type where there's no human human trainer involved, uh, you're still coding it with what it needs to observe its its kind of trial and error behavior and and learn from that. So it can still learn autonomously, but it needs that extra experience to uh, to learn and to go go even more specific to add the aspect of of having a human trainer. Um, I think the the relevance there is uh, there, there's a few a few categories, I guess. One is where the human is the only one that really knows what the right behavior is. Um, so let's say like I'm an engineer, I'm creating a system that's going to learn from a human trainer. If I don't know what that human trainer wants of the system, then then creating something like this human-based, uh, you know, this, this interactive reinforcement learning uh, might be the best option because then you're putting that reward, you're putting that ability to say this is the right task, this is the wrong, you know, this is the right way to do the task, this is the wrong way to do the task in the hands of the user. Um, so that kind of customization, I think, would be uh, one of the big categories. Um, and then another one is is you can actually mix uh, human and, and non-human learning, uh, where, so to go back to the chess example, uh, you might still have that same reward that tells the system whether it won or, you know, or lost or stalemated. Um, and that's really what it like, knows is just completely grounded out like in the end that's its goal is to win you know to to win as much as possible um but you could speed up its learning by letting people give it feedback or or guidance and you know various various types of input um and so we also did research in that direction uh where we showed that a traditional reinforcement learning agent could learn much more quickly if it was learning both from that expert coded reward function and from human delivered reward um so i think that's to quickly summarize, the two categories are when the engineer doesn't know what the system should be doing and it needs to be customized by the end user. Um, and the second one is where the system does kind of know uh, what success looks like, but not how to get there. And that the humans, the humans around it can they have actually have some knowledge, some domain knowledge that, that they could transfer and, and help that system learn and incur less cost while learning. And you mentioned, um, you noted several of the challenges this research is facing at the moment and that you expect to to see it actually take a take hold in industry. What's it going to take for us to get there? Yeah, so to, to get there in industry, um, I think I think a lot of it is is already happening. Um, you know, if you asked me five five years ago, I, I think I might not have been as optimistic um, about how quickly uh, a lot of like big applications uh, would be would be found. And you know, just right now, like artificial intelligence and machine learning is, you know, are are, are pretty hot uh, in in industry, and so there's a lot of money behind it, and a lot of uh, academics are you know in, in startups or you know big R and D labs at places like Google and Facebook, and um, and so there are people working on applications that are valuable um, to to industry. You know, they haven't necessarily said what they're working on yet, um, at least not not too many cases that I've seen. Um, but there are actually I don't I don't want to also uh, represent it as if there have been no big applications. There there actually have been. So like uh, the the AlphaGo algorithm, mm-hmm. uh, the one that beat the the by by Google DeepMind that beat the world champion in Go. Right. Uh, that was a reinforcement learning uh, agent. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a mixture of things. They they learned uh, if I remember right. I haven't I haven't actually read the paper, but if they 
they I think they learned from some expertise, which you might consider similar to, to learning from demonstration. Uh, but then they also had it play against itself and and learn doing you know doing reinforcement learning uh, while while playing against itself, which is a common tactic for 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 these games uh, where there's two players. You have the system actually just play itself um, and and learn to get better. And then there's also been some other like big big like very impressive demos. So like one that that comes to mind is uh, the autonomous helicopter flying by by Peter Abiel, um and the group that he was in at the time at, at Stanford. Um, where they used reinforcement learning to uh, allow this helicopter to do all sorts of really impressive kind of stunt maneuvers. And that's that's something you can find. Like the video is pretty impressive online. And uh, I think you would Google uh, apprenticeship learning helicopter or something mm-hmm. like that. And you can see it's a pretty cool video of that. Awesome. So I'm going to turn just a little bit and talk about another article you wrote this year um, that focused on interactive machine learning. Now, this might be a naive question, especially for our audience, but is that related to reinforcement learning? It is. Yeah. So, you know, interactive machine learning is a special form of machine learning. And, you know, I, I also can say the same thing about reinforcement learning, that it's that that's like kind of a subtype of machine learning. Um, but they actually kind of the, those that categorization interacts somewhat, uh, you could say orthogonally in, in the sense that there's uh, interactive reinforcement learning. So uh, everything I talked about in you know from that that previous paper uh, that we were just talking about could be called interactive reinforcement learning. Um, in fact, that's the, the term that a lot of people use for it. So basically, interactive machine learning is uh, machine learning where there's a, a tight coupling between the learning system and some human user. And so it might be that that you want to remove the background from an image. This is a simple, this is a simple example that actually uh, exists in you know, a lot of applications that we use. Um, so if you want to remove the background from an image, you can start painting on what the background is, and then the system will kind of guess what the rest of the background is, even though you haven't touched every pixel that, that's the background. Um, and it shows you that visually. And that, and then you typically what you do is you look at where it's wrong and you'd either you know paint it, you know, as like, oh, this also is background, or this thing that, that the system thinks is background isn't really background. And so there's this this approach where you could consider that system a form of machine learning. It's trying to say, given a little bit of information about what you're saying is the background and what isn't, it's going to try to classify the whole image as background or not background um, or the, each part of the image. And and so a key part of it, you can see in that that simple system that a lot of, you know, I, have you ever interacted with one of these systems before um, where you try to remove the background from an image? Oh, like sure. PowerPoint? Or, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. So so you can see in that in that kind of system, some of the like key ingredients of interactive machine learning uh, where the system's giving feedback to the user after some input. So the input changes the the model that says what's background and what's not. The result of the model is visually shown to the person. It doesn't always have to be visual, but in this case it is. In a way that the person can really understand easily what the system has learned. And then they can almost immediately give more information that's specifically tailored to where the errors are in the system. So it's not just going to give more it's not the person's not going to like paint more background where the system already knows correctly that it's background uh they they end up tailoring their their further input based on what the system what the the model the machine learning based model uh has learned or not so yeah so in short interactive machine learning is where you're not just doing this this more traditional idea of you just 
get a ton of data and hand it off to a machine learning expert and they craft the the right algorithm and possibly feature representation and things like that. Um, and then they can hand the model back to whoever needs to use it. But instead that there's some sort of interplay between the the person who's the the end user of the model or just someone who who is not just this this uh, machine learning expert who is separated from the domain expert. Right, right. And your so your article um, kind of focused on research you've been doing and some case studies, and and I'll link to these things um, for our listeners in the um, right, post that that goes up on O'Reilly. But um, can you talk a little bit about that research and the case studies and what you're learning? Yeah. Um, so these case studies were um, so these are case studies of of other people's research. Um, and including some of our research. So the, the stuff that we talked about before, uh, my work on reinforcement learning with human reward, that's that's one of the sections in it. But uh, to, to talk a little bit about some of the other content in there, there's one of the pieces I think is like pretty pretty fun and interesting is, uh, and, and this really shows how it's useful to think about the human in these systems. So in, in machine learning, if you, so in machine learning, often the input to the machine learning system is seen as coming from an oracle. Basically, it's jargon for something that always has the right answer. Um, you know, so like possibly the machine learning system, some of them do something called active learning where they decide they what new data would be most valuable. And so they'll like ask the oracle what the actual like correct answer is for this one situation. And there are uh, there are approaches uh, like that approach learning from demonstration that I spoke about earlier, that in, in the more theoretical work, they're very likely to assume that this perfect oracle uh, that's always available and always correct is, is available to the system. And when that oracle, you know, when that source of input is actually human, a lot breaks down there. So for instance, uh, one is just people, people are often incorrect. You know, so for instance, like with learning from demonstration, if I'm going to demonstrate how to do a task, like let's say I'm going to demonstrate how to how to shoot a basketball into a, a basketball hoop, you know, that's not perfect data. Um, the basketball going in one out of you know 20 times is uh, <laughs> is, is not uh, definitely not perfect data on how to shoot a basketball into a basketball hoop. But you could potentially still learn from my failures, and there's data, there's imp important information in even when I failed, and so realizing that and not assuming that everything I did was perfectly correct could really help a system in, in learning uh, from those imperfect demonstrations. Um, and then also there's, so uh, one of the specific studies that, that we talk about in, the, in this paper is one by one of the auth authors, uh, Maya Chakmak, who's a professor now at University of Washington, uh, where they have this, this robot uh, and it's learning, uh, it's learning a task. And it has this uh, machine learning technique that I mentioned of active learning where it has an idea of, of what the best new information would be for improving its own understanding. And they found that people were, you know, as you might expect, they were super annoyed when the robot would just ask them a, a stream of, of ongoing questions about their task. And it turned out like, you know, people, it confused people a little bit about why the robot was asking so many questions. And at times it maybe didn't make sense in terms of uh, the actual task. Um, you know, like we have kind of an implicit timing uh, for what, like when people would ask questions and things like that. And so that, that is just a very clear and simple illustration that these things that we assume when we're doing machine learning or artificial intelligence without thinking about how a human either is, like has to be involved or, or could be involved, that those assumptions can can be wildly incorrect. Um, and as and as I showed in 
in that research with the, the, the talked about people being biased towards giving positive reward, it can completely destroy the system's ability to learn effectively. And, and I think that's, that's one of the, like, the great takeaways of this paper is, is that as soft and fuzzy of a problem as humans are from a computer scientist standpoint, um, in the end, these, these systems do serve people. Um, and to varying degrees, people are going to be involved in the systems and understanding them and understanding their role in the systems is, is really going to be critical. And so through all this research and, and the case studies, what did you learn that surprised you or that you didn't expect? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything that, that, I, haven't, uh, that I haven't touched on already. I, I, so you know, the, just to like point back at some of the things that I, that I mentioned, this, this idea that people break when people like are providing the reward for reinforcement learning algorithm that they uh, break some major assumptions. That was, that was definitely a surprise. I, right, I did not right. go in thinking that was going to be the case. I think so. I I would point this this paper, the one we're talking about now, the the one that's on interactive machine learning, that's called uh, Power to the People. It's very readable. Um, if you have even like a light understanding of machine learning, uh, I, I think it's 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 fairly accessible. And I, I'm not as fresh on on some of the some of the case studies that uh, that were not work that I did and you know that we wrote about, about like two years ago. Um, but I do remember there being some really interesting takeaways uh, where it's. It, you know, so so one thing you might ask is how much transparency should a person be given when they're using a machine learning system? Um, in in other words, like how much should they get to see what's happening under you know under the hood? Mm-hmm. And from what I remember, the answer is just not it's not very simple. Um, there were cases where adding transparency improved the human and 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 machine learning systems performance, and there were times where it was problematic. And and I think. I think that really shows that there's there's some richness to this area um, and some subtleties that that really uh, that really need to be looked into more. Right, right. And so, what are some tools for implementing these ideas in practice? Um, we've got one article on O'Reilly.com about um, orchestra, mm. uh, but you know where it basically orchestrates the work between humans and machines. But it, it when I was talking with Ben Lorica, um, who heads our data space, he was saying that it seems like everyone is creating their own pipeline. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you see in this, in this space? Um, I think, I think this question exposes a little bit that, uh, most of my experience as a software engineer has been as a researcher, um, where we often, you know, we, we use, sometimes we'll use code that really fits what we need to do for research, which is make a non-deployed system that's good long, you know, that's going to work long enough to to run our experiments um, and isn't going to take on the full complexity of, of having like thousands and thousands of users. I can say like at a at a higher level, like what people should be thinking about when they do choose systems. So if you're doing regular machine learning, then you, you know, you either can just code it yourself or use some of the existing systems that are that are out there. Um, one of the ones that's been around for a long time is is Weka, which which a lot of researchers like, um, and it's it's in Java. So if you're using Java, uh, that's a good one to look at. And there's a lot there's a lot of other uh, a lot of other libraries out there. Like for instance, uh, SciPy and NumPy in Python mm-hmm. are, are quite popular. But I think uh, one thing to to think about here is if you're doing interactive machine learning, um, there's this element that you need to communicate something about what's been learned or about the learning process to the person, uh, to the user. So you need something that can do visualization or some other kind of uh, really intuitive and, and easy to consume communication 
of what's important to the user from that machine learning process. So uh, unlike a normal machine learning task or application, this this feedback, this visualization or other forms of feedback to, to the user is a really important component. Um, and then also, since you're going to be taking input from a regular user, there's there's also considerations there. You know, so sometimes just the normal thing like a keyboard is fine or a mouse, but also there are times that maybe you you need like a verbal interface um, or even something more complicated. Like there's, you know, there's there's work that includes uh, understanding people's three-dimensional poses. And, and, you know, that definitely, you know, at least you you end up with like some sort of something like the Microsoft Connect or you know, some other system for capturing that. Um, so I think those three things, thinking about them together, a visualization, the input interface, and what's actually going to do the machine learning, and then how those three are going to plug together. Uh, I think that's that's kind of the starting point. And, and then kind of think about like, well, what what languages uh, do we have any language constraints? Do we have constraints about what what this is going to run on, whether it's a server or a, a local computer and things like that? And, and to go from there. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating, fascinating discussion, Brad. I, I want to close today with a question I've been asking all of my guests lately. Who and or what is inspiring you today? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, I've. I've I've got in some ways that so one of the things I didn't talk about with reinforcement learning is uh, there's this this uh, dichotomy of an agent either exploring or exploiting where exploring is trying new things to to learn more and exploiting is taking what the agent already thinks is best and just trying to do as best as possible by by just doing that um, and I think acad- academics are are very blessed in the way that they're they do some. Ex- they definitely do some exploitation, but they're uh, they get to explore a lot. They're, there's a lot of uh, consuming new information and, and learning and so on. Um, and right now, I'm I'm actually in a very <laughs> very exploitative mode, uh, trying to create this, this product bots alive. And and so really, that's 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 what a lot of my focus has been on, and and definitely like where I'm getting inspiration. So this product is it. I don't think we've actually talked about what it is, but it's a smartphone kit uh, that's going to be probably around twenty five dollars or so. And it will bring this one specific uh, remote control toy to life, um, giving it artificial intelligence and, and specifically this this kind of organic, uh, natural feeling ar- artificial intelligence that is created by uh, modeling a puppeteer. And so, like, you know, really, like what I'm most excited about these days is really getting to, to push that forward and running that Kickstarter. And, you know, hopefully there will be some really nice response and we can actually put these techniques in people's hands. and. And I like I really strongly suspect that this this modeling technique where you take a, an authentic social actor, um, you know, which is a human and and model them rather than do this, this more armchair technique of sitting back and saying, you know, in this situation, the character should do this. Um, I think I think that this really in like five, 10 years could be a, a, a much, you know, at least on its way to being a dominant method for creating characters, both in video games and like electronic, like robot characters. Um, so I'm, I'm just really excited to to see you know what we can do with it. Um, whether it's you know it's going to be a a I think it's going to be new and novel and and fun. Um, but it'll it'll also be like a a step in the much more complex like bigger robot pets vision that I I would like to go towards in like five or ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't wait to just to put it in people's hands and 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 see how they respond and and see if if our hypotheses and the the things we've seen so far about this being a promising technique really. Uh, really are supported by by putting it out there. Wow, that's so exciting. And for the listeners out there, again, we'll link to a bunch of the stuff that Brad and I talked about in this episode on uh, 
the post on O'Reilly.com. And Brad, thank you so much. This has been a great time. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Webb and Brad at Brad Knox. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh, 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 oh,